The issue of student loans is more complicated than ever in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, loan forgiveness, student debt, and government loan programs. So let's talk all about it with student loan expert Travis Hornsby right here on episode 287 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're disseminating as much high quality, evidence-based information and expert opinion about the situation as we can in our special COVID-19 bonus episodes. Meanwhile, we still wanna support you in all aspects of your life and nursing career and discuss the issues that you care about and that are important for you. I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or years, Thanks for being part of the Growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast, of course, is all about you and your career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. And remember that Nurse Keith Coaching is your one-stop shop for all things related to your career. I offer individualized, holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals. Mention the show when you email me at keith at nursekeith.com and you get 10% off your first coaching package. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 287. Today, we're joined by friend of the pod, Travis Hornsby of studentloanplanner.com, who some of you might recall was with us not that long ago on episode 211. And Travis, we'll get to talking about Student Loan Planner in a little bit, but I want to ask you just right out of the gate, like what, what are the, what's the state of student loans and debts right now? Um, well, they're not growing. Uh, I guess that's the, the good thing because they're at 0%. So since March 13th, the federal student loans have been at 0% interest and you also have had to pay zero payments. And all of these zero payments also count towards loan forgiveness programs for the number of payments that you need before they give you forgiveness. So, for example, if you're working towards the public service loan forgiveness program, which a lot of nurses are, that's the program you have to work 10 years at a hospital or a not-for-profit place full-time, and then your loans are forgiven if you've made income-based payments. Those $0 payments right now count towards public service loan forgiveness. So, that's good news. That's good news for nurses around the country. So, the question is, is what's going to happen after that you know, that new stimulus gets passed. And, and what is it going to be? Like, it's certainly going to be something because, you know, the Republicans don't want to go into an election with having not done anything, you know, with the current state of the economy, right? So we know that something will happen. The question is, is will it include student loan borrowers? So, you know, in the kind of relief, by the way, that's going to happen if it does happen is they're just going to extend the period of zero payments. So it's not going to be anything fancier than that. Basically, people will just maybe instead of having zero payments until September 30th, maybe there'll be zero payments until, you know, December 31 or March 31 or, you know, June 30th, 2021, right? So that's the potential relief that could happen. Okay. So first I want to ask, are, is the zero payment concept, is that directly related to the public service loan forgiveness, the PSLF program, or is that a different animal? I'm not quite sure I understand how that works. Sure. Well, there's, you know, when you have student loans, you have to make payments, right? So let's start from there. And your payments are either going to be a fixed monthly payment where you pay, you know, 500 every month, 
and you have 50,000 of loans and after 10 years, you'll have paid it all off or you'll be paying a percentage of your income. So it's generally one of the two. Most people these days are signing up to pay a percentage of their income, particularly if you went to a nursing program that was on the more expensive side. So if you're paying a percentage of your income, then that's what you have to do to qualify for loan forgiveness for the at least most loan forgiveness programs, the public service loan forgiveness program being the most common and popular. You have to pay based on your income and then anything left over after 10 years of service is forgiven tax-free. So it's the $0 payments are not necessarily like directly related to PSLF because you're just talking about this special, you know, bill that got passed that basically allows people to pay nothing. So the, the, the problem though is people were already allowed to pay nothing. You know, that's, that's, that's the thing. It's like, so you can do forbearance actually on federal loans for up to three years. The problem though is normally forbearance charges you interest and that forbearance does not count towards any forgiveness program. So in a pandemic, you know, imagine the reaction people would have had if they had to, you know, a lot of people would have had to sign up for forbearance, yet their interest would have continued to accrue and they would not have been able to generate credit towards forgiveness programs. Oh, so, I see. So that's what, the, that's what the bill did is it said, well, let's take those existing government benefits on federal student loans that already exist that are just intrinsic to federal student loans. Let's make them a lot more generous by suspending all of the interest and then also suspending the, uh, you know, allowing people to count those suspended payments towards forgiveness programs that they would normally have to pay 10% of their income for. Wow. So it was just suspending all of those requirements so that people could get, you know, their loans forgiven a lot more easily. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, very complex and economics are definitely not my my forte. And that's one reason I'm having you back on the show again. Um, so in terms of the pandemic then, we we had the CARES Act and that's what paused some of the interest payments, right? Correct. Okay. And that's different than the payroll protection program. That was that's completely different. That was for workers only. Correct. That's the PPP program. Well, that's PPP. that's for small businesses, you know. So if you were a small business, you could have applied for that program to get some support for your payroll for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's unrelated. Although the PPP program was a part of the CARES Act, so the CARES Act was this giant bill, two trillion dollar bill, and it was all kinds of stuff within it. So you know the oh right for different groups, different groups, the right? Exactly. So this the the Heroes Act was a three trillion dollar bill. So the HEROES mm-hmm. Act is something that barely passed the House of Representatives. I think about a dozen Democrats actually voted against it for various reasons. Some of them thinking it went too far, some thinking it didn't go far enough. But the, the point there is that stimulus bill, the, the one that Democrats want to do, is, uh, is not going to happen at all. Now, the question is, is what stimulus will happen? You know, Senate Republicans have asked for about, a, I think, a trillion dollars is the cap on the price of the new, next stimulus they're willing to do. So that's what I would be looking at. And if you're asking yourself, what, what can you get in a $1 trillion bill? You know, student loan forgiveness would probably cost around three or 400 billion. You know, there's a, a movement to cancel 10,000 of student loan debt for every American in the HEROES Act. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's almost surely not going to happen in this coming stimulus. Right, because if you take, if, it's a, if they limit it to a trillion dollars, right? Did you say a trillion? Trillion, yeah. And the student loan forgiveness would be, you said, 500 
billion. It would be hundred. It would be like 30, 40, 50% of the bill, you know, if they, if they did that. So, so they would rather use that money for unemployment benefits, for food stamp assistance mm-hmm. or food nutritional assistance. Shoring up Medicaid or whatever, anything Right, like exactly. That. You know, payments to hospitals or whatever. I mean, so state and local governments, which still have not received any aid, you know, or any significant mm-hmm giant aid. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are things. So in other words, student loan borrowers are probably not going to be prioritized in future bills. So it's just really, it's hard to say what's going to be happening for people. But, but the, the good news with, with nurses is that nurses have so many uh, programs that a lot of times they're just completely unaware of. Right. You know, uh, just the ability to pay a lot less on your loans is, is something I would say maybe half, at least half of nurses don't even realize that they can pay a lot less and get more forgiven. Well, let's, let's talk about that. And I want to get to the politics part after the break. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of the upcoming general election that's sure, happening sure. in just a few months from now. So before the break, what I want to dig into now is on episode 211, we did talk about things that nurses generally don't know about different types of loan programs, et cetera, et cetera. So let's reiterate whatever needs to be reiterated from episode 211 because some of it might be new or just slightly updated. Mm -hmm. And if it's a little redundant, that's fine because that episode was long ago. So let's dig back into what's possible for nurses aside from relying on what we were just talking about. So what's different about loan forgiveness programs for nurses? I mean, so the, the good news actually is, is not too much, um, at least in terms of actual policy. You know, so the public service loan forgiveness program is still there and it's still actually, I would say, stronger than ever. So we've seen the uh, acceptance rate go up for PSLF quite a bit. Um, I mean, you know, you can say that this is not a sign of progress, but, you know, it, it was 1%. Now it's like 3 or 4%. Uh, you know, and so that's improving. Now, the reason it's improving is because more and more people have the right kind of loans. So, you know, but the the idea that PSLF's never happening, you're never going to see loan forgiveness, that's actually not the case because we've seen it. And I get emails all the time from people saying that they've received loan forgiveness. So that's one point is people that say it's not happening or uninformed. You know, it might not happen for you because you make too much money or you don't have a big enough loan balance. But but if you have the right kind of setup, you can get it. So that's good. Um, I would say that the big things in my mind for, for nurses that could happen are, are probably 2020 election results that could change things. So certainly we can kind of talk about that a little later in the show. But I think that, yeah. you know, for your typical nurse, I think that you would want to look at, you know, are your loans below um, 50000 or are they above 50000 if they're below 50,000, you'd probably be better off using any kind of like state and local forgiveness programs. Maybe your employer has a student loan benefit program. Maybe you could benefit from some sort of nursing core, nurse core program or something along those lines. If you have more than 50,000 though, then it's probably a better idea instead of paying down your loans, if you use that money to put it into your hospital's 403B plan, you could save money for retirement and get your income a little bit lower. And then you could reduce your payment so that you would have at least the majority of your loans would be forgiven tax-free. So there's kind of two different strategies there. And there's also strategies for nurses that are married to minimize that payment because sometimes they ask you to count your spouse's income and your payment, which you can avoid. So Mm -hmm. I'd really kind of break nurses up into two groups, the below 50K group that probably should pay back their debt or seek loan forgiveness programs that just literally forgive a portion of that debt directly. And then the group of nurses that have more than 50,000, 
that probably should look for more advanced forgiveness strategies and probably shouldn't be paying back their debt. I see. You know what I'm going to ask you to do if you don't mind? Because my ability to encapsulate this completely accurately for the show notes is, you know, questionable. So if you would write this up for us very clearly, you probably already have it written up somewhere so that we can put this in the show notes really clearly so that people understand exactly what you just said. Would that be okay? Well, yeah, I think the best thing to do is just a link to our nursing student loan forgiveness article that has all of this already written. We'll get the link for the listeners. Yeah. Okay. That would be great. And that goes over that goes over all of this information about the less than 50K or more than 50K debt and what the best strategy is. G- generally, it does. Generally. Yeah. Okay. That would be great. And then people can contact you at Student Loan Planner if they have more deeper questions. Right. Right. So- just to understand, though, just for my own brain, um, my pandemic brain. So if someone has more than 50K, you're saying it's better to put your money into your employer's 403B plan, save for retirement in the future, rather than pay down your debt because it's going to be better for you in the long run. And 403B, no, you have 401Ks. That's where your employer pitches into your your retirement, right? Right. So like there's basically, there's like multiple different things that you can do for retirement, right? You maybe have heard of IRAs, maybe yeah. you've heard of saving for, you know, in a brokerage account or something. Sure, but, of course. Uh, but, but in general, like a, a hospital, most, most nurses work at hospital systems. Well, actually only about 50 to 55 or percent of hot nurses maybe 60 tops. Okay. So, so maybe a, a decent size. So the rest are going to work at clinics, doctor's offices, outpatient places that aren't connected to a hospital, school nurses, um, research nurses, nurse educators. There's, there's a lot of folks outside the hospital systems. Okay. So, so anyone in, in a, in a not-for-profit setting is probably going to have a four or three B. Okay. So anyone in a, in a, any kind of not-for-profit or sort of semi-government kind of agency. So that would include all the hospital systems probably. It would also include um, people in, in maybe school settings. Um, it would include, you know, anybody that maybe works at a not-for-profit, um, you know, retirement home or something like that. Okay. Um, that, would, that would be a 4 3 b That's, a, that's a, a plan provided to you by your work. The thing that nurses should know is there's really no difference between a 4 3 b and a 401k. You can only really do one of them, um, but you're, you're going to want to, do whatever one that your employer offers you. Okay. So if they offer you a 403B, use that. If they use offer you a 401K, use that. And you're, you know, most people will put 4% into that and they'll get a 4% match. That's like the most common thing that nurses do. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is, is that, you know, that's probably not the best strategy because you might be tempted to put 500 into your loans, but instead you could be putting 500 into your retirement. And because that's tax deductible, you might be able to put in maybe eight or 900 into retirement and have that cost you the same amount of money. Right. But don't, but someone might say in response, I could hear someone right now listening saying, well, but I have to make some payments on my loans. That's true. And, and you do. And, and that's why you want to pay based on your income generally. Right. Right now you don't have to pay anything, but when you do have to pay again, you'll be paying a percentage of your income. And the thing is, is because it's a percentage of your income, when you put away 800 a month to your retirement, that's about a $10,000 amount per year. That 10,000 comes off of your income. So your student loan payments are 10% of your income. That 10% of your income is now 
less because you put that money into retirement that reduced your income. So that's going to basically like save you a lot of money in taxes and student loan payments. So just want, just want generally people to know that they need to be thinking, how do I reduce my taxable income while growing my financial security long term so that I don't have to be a nurse into my 70s? I see. Now, you're a chartered financial analyst and you're a former bond trader trading billions of dollars. And right now you're the founder of studentloanplanner.com and you're host of the Student Loan Planner podcast, which we'll link in the show notes as well. And you've consulted on over $500 million in student loan personally, which you say is more than anyone else in the country. That's a lot. So that's half a billion dollars basically, right? So um, why did you get into helping people with their student loans? What, what's the story behind why you do what you do now rather than trading or doing the other stuff you used to do in the world? You know, so when you have, uh, when you're managing money for people that benefit from a tax exemption for their investing, you're helping people that have largely already found financial success. You know, it's people that generally have a lot of assets that are in retirement or people that are building a lot of assets very rapidly because they're in a very high tax bracket. There's nothing wrong with that, um, but it wasn't something that's particularly spoke to my passion, which is really helping people, you know, really transform lives. That's really what I'm kind of most interested in. I see. So it would be kind of like a nurse that chooses to, you know, maybe go work uh, with, with folks that, you know, it's sort of a life or death situation versus something that's more cosmetic in nature, right? Right. The, certainly the cosmetic stuff is, 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 is very important too, but it's just, you know, a different level of, of people get different levels of satisfaction out of different things. So for me, I kind of wanted to be that like life or death financial practitioner and uh, financial, you know, financial issues around student loans uh, really in some cases are actually even a matter of life and death because some people even have, you know, considered, uh, you know, suicidal ideation or, or really serious uh, mental health challenges that they faced because of their debt burdens. So I got into it mainly because of, of that feeling that I, I like I was kind of not aligned with my calling. And also my wife's student loans uh, were managed very poorly because she didn't have access to help. And she was more focused on caring for her patients than, you know, getting the right student loan guidance and, and learning the rules herself. Oh. And, uh, and that was pretty costly for us personally. And I just thought, wow, that's something that, you know, other people should not, you know, have to go through. And so that's why I decided to do this. I see. Well, so it's like you wanted, you wanted to be more in the ER or ICU of financial planning, not in the, the you know, concierge medicine working with the, the, the wealthy well, basically. Or working with the tri- the triathletes, right? The they probably don't need my services. They'll probably be okay no matter what, you know. Yeah. So that's that's noble. I, I think it's a very noble mission. I remember part of that story from last year when we when we spoke in 2019. So your wife is a healthcare professional, I believe. That's right. She's a physician. Okay. So obviously, she probably had a fair amount of debt. I would assume it was six figures. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot, and. Whereas physicians can earn a good living between debt and liability insurance, you know, that the kind of like the medical legal aspect of practicing medicine, there's, there's a lot that has to be put on the table in order to even first start to practice. 
That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, and and some people would argue, well, you know, physicians have already kind of won the game too. So, why, you know, why are you helping physicians or, you know, nurses are in the top, you know, whatever distribution of the income percentile by merely making, you know, what nurses make. I think mm-hmm. the, the, the thing is, is as a country, it's kind of like you can try to solve everything or you can take a few steps that really move things forward. So like financial planning really is targeted at serving the top probably two or 3% of households right now in terms of their wealth. Sure. And that's what the model kind of is set up to reward is, is cause you know, I can serve uh, X number of clients in a day. And if I have a certain skill set and I can earn 20,000 a year from working with one client or 2000 a year working with another client, a lot of people are going to choose to do the same amount of work for the one that pays them 20,000. Right. Sure. So, uh, so many, many of the ablest financial planners kind of gravitate to that model. Um, and so, you know, if you set up something that merely helps the top one third of the income distribution, uh, you could say that's, you know, kind of helping people in, in a certain kind of higher advantaged income bracket. But we're coming from a context where people in the top 2%, you know, are the ones getting all the best help. And the 98% has to kind of just fend for themselves and, you know, Pay, you know, talk to their retirement person at work and hope that person's acting in their best interest. And uh, it's something that, you know, I felt like I could help specifically for people with student loans. So, you know, nurses deserve good financial planning. Uh, to my knowledge, there's not a ton of, of great financial planning options out there specifically aimed at nurses. Um, there are some coming out like Schwab and Vanguard have financial planning now for a very accessible price uh, delivered by people that have to act in your best interest. So. Uh, but those people are not going to have any clue what to do with your student loans. So that's really kind of what kind of sets us apart is we can get you a holistic plan looking specifically at what do you do to not feel burdened anymore by your loans. I'll say that most of our clients are probably people that pursued kind of accelerated nursing programs. They're these mm-hmm. master's programs. Sure. You know, a lot of universities where people with a, maybe a bachelor's degree and something kind of unrelated uh, can go and get a nursing program and, uh, and get a nursing degree. And, uh, and, yeah. and those, those programs we find lead people around 150,000 in debt. Um, so we see a lot of clients from our nursing uh, clients are kind of falling in this, in this sort of debt range, which is pretty, pretty shocking. Wow. Well, thank you for that service. Thanks for sharing the backstory. I appreciate that behind Student Loan Planner. And we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, I really would like to talk more about the upcoming election, because it is going to have a pretty significant impact on student loans one way or the other. And we'll talk about any other strategies you recommend that nurses might employ and any advice you might have. So we'll be right back for the second half of the Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Nurse Keith. 
And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. Well, thanks for hanging out here on the Nurse Keith Show. This is the second half of episode 287, and we're here with friend of the pod, Travis Hornsby of studentloanplanner.com. We'll have links to everything he's been mentioning throughout the course of the interview, including a link to a comprehensive article on student loan forgiveness, as well as all the other resources at studentloanplanner.com and also his previous appearance on the Nurse Keith show on episode 211. So Travis, right before the break, we were talking about student loan load and how physicians, how much they carry and how a lot of your clients are those accelerated nurses who've been done an accelerated MSN, for instance, or maybe even a PhD or DNP, and they've come in from other careers. Um, but I'm sure you work with a lot of nurses who are more traditional with a BSN or maybe even an ADN and who are advancing their careers and accruing debt. So do you work with folks across what I would call the nursing lifespan in terms of nursing student loan debt? Well, we do if, if there's the need. You know, if somebody okay. sends us an email and, and they're saying, I've got 30,000 of student loans and, you know, I want clarification on, you know, the nursing core program or something like that, we're just going to direct them to a blog post because, you know, it's just not something that's worth probably paying a few hundred bucks to get a plan for. You know, if somebody has twenty, thirty thousand $30,000, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to be able to save them, you know, a ton of money. But if somebody owes more than 50, there's almost a certainty that we're going to save somebody a ton of money. Okay. Uh, just because of the way the programs are designed. The more you owe, the, the bigger opportunities there are for big savings. So, I mean, we find nurses really uh, just don't understand a lot of the different programs that are available to them. You know, you're overburdened. You're focused on other things, especially right now with the pandemic. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think that there's different kinds of situations nurses are, ha- are finding themselves in. Some are doing great financially, but they're just overwhelmed emotionally. Mm-hmm. Some are, uh, you know, struggling because they were in more of an elective field and the elective revenues uh, for those surgeries they do have just completely dried up. And uh, I know of a lot of nurses that got laid off uh, because of the, uh, you know, a lot of the health systems and employers just said, well, we can get them, you know, 600 a week plus unemployment benefits. So we're going to, you know, lay the nurses off first because we're going to get some support from that. But there's, you know, it's, it's a big if as to whether or not everybody's going to get recalled. That's good point. Very good point. There's all these stressors out there. The good news I can tell you is, is, is if you are worried about something, you know, 
let it not be about your loans. Like, let it be about other things. Okay. Just because, so, so we can talk about this 2020 election. So, you know, in terms of what might happen, the one thing I can guarantee is, is no one that is going to win that's going to uh, fix the problem for you. Okay, there, there could very well be some big changes that'll happen. I'll tell, I'll tell people about that in a second. Sure. But ju- just know that there's nothing that's going to replace actually having a plan and knowing kind of in general, are you going to go for payback? Or are you going to go for forgiveness? So here's the things that might influence that for, for listeners. So if Biden wins, Biden is talking, talking about expanding public service loan forgiveness drastically. So that would apply to anybody in a not-for-profit or government setting, but it would, you'd only have to pay 5% of your income instead of 10. So if Biden passed that, any nurse with more than $20,000 of, of, of student loans could probably get at least half of her loans forgiven. Mm-hmm. So any, any, right now, you need probably around 50000 But a, a nurse, if Biden's plan passed, would probably only need 20000 of loans to get significant forgiveness. So that would be mean a lot fewer nurses should pay back their loans if Biden wins. That's the takeaway. Okay. So Biden wins. Biden wins. Probably pay the minimum on your loans and figure out what he's going to do for loans because it's probably going to be something that will result in you paying a lot less than you would have. Okay. So if Biden wins, you're saying there'll be an expansion of public service loan forgiveness programs and people will pay five instead of 10%. Of their income. Of their incomes. And now that's what he's proposed. That's, um, it's not guaranteed to pass. Right, of course, but, it has to pass. Yeah. And then you're saying there would be less paid over time. Right. So that's that's your projection of what he's, well, that's what he's proposing. And that's what could happen as long as it makes it through the House and the Senate and gets signed into law, right? Right. So, so what does that mean if you're a nurse with more than 20000 of student loan debt? Yeah. It means you probably should avoid making any big payments towards your loans until we have a more clarity on the outcome of the 2020 election, as well as the policies that might happen after that. Okay. So, so that's, that's the key thing is people need to be cautious about trying to put, you know, say they have $5,000 and they don't know what to do with it. And they're thinking about putting it on their loans. My suggestion would be to hold that back and keep it in the savings account right now, just until we figure out exactly what's going on. Okay. That's really good piece of advice because people might be thinking that way right now because they're they're in a panic about their finances. Maybe their their spouse lost their job or something and they're like, I'm gonna pay down my loans as quickly as possible. So you're saying much better sit on that money, making a little interest. Don't pump it into your loans until we know what happens. Correct. And and yeah, then if good advice. if Trump okay. were to win re-election, then you basically would feel exactly how you feel right now in terms of your student loans. So probably nothing will change. There's probably not going to be any any new rules or any kind of more generous forgiveness terms or, or probably not even any less generous forgiveness terms. It probably will just sort of continue on status quo because uh, the Trump administration has never really cared about student loans very much. Um, that's why they've preserved executive orders uh, from the Obama administration actually on student loans. I don't think it's because they necessarily ideologically agree. I think it's just they have just chosen to care about other things. So, okay. so I think that if you, if, you, know, you have Trump re-election, then basically whatever your plan was doesn't really change. If, okay. if Biden were to win, you, know, you might lean towards you know, really looking for more loan forgiveness for your loans and thinking that that's probably going to happen. So for example, I have a couple friends right now that are waiting to pay down their loans until the 2020 election to get clarity on is there going to be a mass student loan cancellation benefit? Is there going to be, you know, some sort of expanded loan forgiveness? Because if there is, 
one thing I can tell you is you're not going to get it if you have zero loans. You're not going to get it if you moved your loans to a private lender for a lower interest rate. You know, so that's just something that people would want to realize that having federal loans right now is is the best that it's ever been. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of which, <laughs> federal loans. So I, you may not be able to tell us, but if you could kind of give us a sense of this. So based on the amount of loans being carried by Americans in general, let's just take like a big, big bird's eye view. What percentage of that would you say is probably federal and how much is private? Does anyone really know how that breaks down? About 90% of it's federal and 10% is private. Oh, so we do know that. So 90% is federal, 10% is private. That's right. And when we say private loans, what does it really mean? Like what is, where do people get private loans from? Usually from a lack of awareness, actually. Okay. Uh, in terms of on the front end, because you can almost always finance your loans, finance your education with federal loans only. The only time that you cannot is if you're an undergraduate and you have parents that are unwilling or unable to sign uh, for loans in their name for your education. So for example, if you want to go get a BSN, and your parent is unwilling to sign uh, up for Parent PLUS loans for your education, then you would maybe need to turn to private loans at that point. Because Stafford loans for undergraduate have a very low limit. You're only allowed to borrow around five to $7,000 or so uh, per year. So that's really not enough at all to cover the cost of college. So you know, parents will usually fill that gap by signing up for Parent PLUS loans. A lot of, uh, a lot of students will decide to maybe seek out a private loan to cover some of those costs, you know, instead, um, because maybe their parent is, like I said, unable or unwilling to get a parent plus loan, which is a federal loan. Um, I see. So that's, so that's, that's what, what I typically see people end up with private loans from. The other reason is refinancing. You know, if you work at a private practice and you have 30,000 of student loans and 60, 70,000 income, and you want to pay off that student loan debt, then you can somehow sometimes secure a lower interest rate by moving those loans to the federal from the federal government to the private uh, sector for a lower interest rate. Oh, so when you refinance, you could take your federal loans and bundle them in, lower your interest rate from, let's say, 10% to 3.5% by going with a private company who then buys those and then you're paying the private company. That's correct. It, it's like a consolidation, they used to call it, right? yes. loan consolidation. Yeah, but it's, it's usually for a much lower interest benefit than that. You know, it's usually maybe like a five and a half to three and a half or five and a half to four or something. There is a benefit, but the problem right now is interest on federal loans is zero. So there's actually a negative benefit to refinancing right now, um, simply because of this stimulus bill that the government passed, right? So, you know, <clears throat> you just need to wait until after the... Uh, stimulus for the student loans expires. And then, you know, you'd be able to potentially get uh, access to some of these, uh, you know, lower interest rates with the private lender. I see. So the private lenders, here's a question I just want to understand and other people might want to understand too. Are they by and large predatory? Could we use that term? Or are some of them actually like straight up companies doing good work in the world. And you don't have to name names, of course. Yeah, I would say somewhere in between. In you know, between. these <clears throat> these are not uh these are not, you know, 
um, what's a, what's a good example. These are, these are not the United way or something, but they're also not like, you know, payday lenders either. I mean, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, okay. you know, it's kind of like one of these things where some people would say they're predatory for sure. Um, some people would say, well, they're, you know, providing lower interest rates to customers. I mean, so I think that the, the problem is, is like, they are not looking out for your best interest. That's not their job, right? Their job is to make a profit and that's what they're interested in. And sometimes that aligns with your interests. So for example, that private practice nurse who wants to pay down her debt, uh, she might save a couple thousand dollars, you know, by selling her loan to this private group for a lower interest rate. And that private group makes money on her because she's a low, low risk nurse. So they're making a profit compared to getting 1% on their money with the government. And the nurse is benefiting from a lower interest rate. So that's an example where those, that those interests line up. For people that take out private loans for school on the front end, you know, a lot of times those interest rates are almost at a predatory level, like a 10% is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the reason they're doing that is because the people uh, have a very high default risk in some cases uh, and, and because maybe they're the only lender willing to give that person money. And oh. so your, your choice might be just because, you know, it's getting a private loan, especially without a cosigner, is not an easy thing to do. So, right. you know, so you might, I see. you know, so you might have a situation where, you know, somebody's options are take out a private loan and get my, get my nursing degree or don't take out a private loan, you know, take a year or two off to save up money that I need to pay for nursing school and then go back to work. And, uh, and a lot of times that's, you know, probably not a good decision. You'd probably financially be better off having that exorbitantly high loan, uh, interest cost, but finishing your degree and then immediately trying to pay that loan off. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's, that's what, what I would say is, is that it's, it's somewhere in between. It's not probably so simple as to say it's predatory or not. I see. Thanks. I, I just wanted to hear that because it's, we all have different opinions about these sorts of things. So I just wanted to hear where you come from and your philosophical stance on it. So I want to ask you another question. You know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're six months in, and you've already mentioned hearing from people who are in various types of financial straits. And we also have an election coming up. So like you said, we don't really know where things are going in 2021 because we don't know who will be elected or reelected. So we also have the Senate and the House. A lot of seats are going to flip here and there and everywhere. So we don't know what the makeup of the legislative branch is going to be. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And we also have uncertainty about the course of the pandemic. So I know you're not an economist per se, but you understand a lot of economics. <laughs> what would you say in terms of where? We could be this time next year, if the pandemic continues deep into 2021 and the economy continues to slide, which it is right now, it's actually sliding quite a bit at the moment. What do you think people need to be prepared for? And do you have any best practices in terms of just money in general? Like, What are a few key things for people to think about right now? Well, so the first thing is don't try not to default, you know, try not to default on anything. And if you are borderline defaulting on something, get rid of it, you know, get rid of a car that you can't afford, get rid of a house that you can't afford, uh, maybe through a short sale, right? 
like just try to avoid going into the default where you just have tons of fees and interest and all these things build up on you and just can never get out. The other thing I'd say is get an emergency fund, you know, get three to six months cash in the bank and, and make that a priority, even if you have other kinds of debt. And where would you go for that? Just an FDIC account, any kind of checking account or savings account at a credit union or a bank. It, you know, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It's just mostly just about focusing on saying, okay, if I lost my job for three months, I could cover my bills without having to go into credit card debt. That's the goal. So this is an emergency fund through your bank. Yes. And so get that. And then the next step is try to put in 5% of your income to retirement somewhere. Maybe that's at work. Probably for most people, it will be. If you are in one of these doctor's offices that doesn't offer a retirement plan, then that'll need to be on your own. Uh, you know, maybe at a place like Vanguard with an IRA. Okay. But do it, do it somewhere. Do something to retirement, 5% to retirement. And, uh, and then once you, you know, have uh, you know, that all, all squared away, then you can think about, well, what's next? You know, maybe I pay off my loans faster. Maybe I put more money to retirement. Maybe I invest some money in rental, rental properties or something. But, but that, that option three is the option that can, or, you know, that, that last thing I mentioned, that's something that could kind of take a, a breather, if you will. That could be kind of paused with a really bad economic environment, you know? So, so the, the good news is it, it actually doesn't matter at all what happens with the economy over the next year for the, the, the must-haves for, for somebody. So the, those must-haves are having the emergency fund, you know, getting rid of anything that's just something you can't afford and, uh, and just trying to do something to retirement, even if it's a small amount. That's what really matters from a personal finance perspective. And the, so the good news is, you know, if you have a, a terrible economic crash, well, nurses are just going to need to become more creative. You know, you, you might have to be willing to sacrifice sacred cows. You know, you might need to, uh, you know, switch to a more kind of quote unquote essential field of nursing. That might be something that you don't have a choice to do. You might need to uh, take higher risk, potentially, if you're a healthy person without comorbidities. Maybe you'll need to be willing to work in a, you know, a senior uh, nursing home center, for example. I mean, a couple uh, nurses, my mom said, recently got hired for the first time ever. They hired RNs at a nursing home. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you, you know, the good news is, is as a nurse, you're not going to have a problem getting a job. You're just going to have a problem getting a job where you want and the thing that you want to do. Right. So, so that's what I would say. Right. And then when you said, when you said getting a job where you want, one is the type of job. And that's very true. There's certain areas that are really tight right now. Like you said earlier in the first half of the show, we talked about um, how ambulatory services got cut or completely stopped in many places, including the hospital around the corner where I go for my treatments and such. So there's, there's where, like what type of facility or agency or institution where you're going to work. And then what are your feelings in terms of, this is more economics. So, and you know, in terms of cost of living. So when people talk to me about where they want to live. Like I'll hear from a newer nurse and we're getting away from student loans, but just for a second, just to expand the conversation a little more deeply. So I'll hear from a newer nurse who's maybe 22 or 23. And I ask them, you know, what their plans are like, well, I want to get a job in the Bay area or I want to live in New York city. Um, or they mentioned Chicago or LA or, you know, somewhere really, really expensive or Austin, for instance, or Seattle. And I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> you're going to be earning, you know, maybe hopefully you'll be earning 80,000 a year, 
you know, maybe, um, I hope. And cost of living is, we know what cost of living can be in New York or Seattle or Austin. So if someone young came to you who is just out of nursing school, say she has 75 to 85,000 in debt, maybe more, I don't know, something like that. And she, maybe she's 24, has, doesn't have a previous career and wants to move to like a big, big expensive city where of course she might make more per hour, but cost of living is astronomical. So if someone came to you with that question, what would you say if they could move anywhere they wanted in the country? What would be, what would be a couple pieces of advice you would have them just, just think about? I would, I would say to be creative. So it's not, uh-huh. it's not don't do it. That's not what it is. Because no. if, if you're in your 20s, uh, you want to meet people. You want to have a social life. You want to potentially meet somebody that you could maybe spend your life with, right? Sure. Um, so, so those are all, all things that are much easier to do in big, interesting cities. Uh, and, right. and so what I would tell somebody is I was in Philadelphia. I paid a pretty modest amount of money for my rent. Uh, because I was creative with my housing situation, right? So there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, for example, some of my buddies, they had a house and five guys lived in it. And, you know, it was, you know, kind of a big roommate situation and everybody paid a lot, lot less than if they paid, you know, for a one bedroom to themselves, you know, in some kind of, of a, you know, tower with a doorman, right? Right. Uh, And so that's what I would say is, is something has to give, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be something that's super important to you. Probably if you, care that much about location, the location is more important than having that one bedroom serene place to yourself. Uh, you know, so if the more one bedroom serenity is more important then go to Topeka, Kansas, you know? Yeah. So, so that's what I would say is, is your, your housing expense is by far the most important thing when you're talking about cost of living. So just be creative with maybe potentially having a lot of roommates if you're single uh, and, uh, and living in a very small space with your partner if you're not single. And that'll fix the problem. And then, you know, you, there's plenty of time for moving out to the suburbs or, you know, a new city somewhere else when you're in the, you know, married with kids phase of life, if, if that's something that's inter- some, interesting to someone. Good point. Um, and then, and just get the student loans on a percentage of your income, focus on the emergency fund and retirement savings, just doing the minimal amount at least, developing good habits and then limiting the housing expense and that'll be enough. Good. Okay. That's great. So one of the keys there you said is to be creative. So if you want to live in a real expensive place, think about ways to mitigate some of the the cost of living, because if you're young, you want to be in that kind of exciting place or move to a less expensive city for a little while to get started, get your experience for a few years, and then move to like a top tier city, right? Like you start in Topeka or Nashville or actually Nashville is fairly expensive. And then go on to New York or LA or San Francisco or Seattle or Austin. And then you said very importantly, you reiterated this again, get your student loans as percent of your income, right? So have it indexed to your income, save for retirement. So I want to go back to one thing before we close. I want to ask that emergency fund you mentioned from the FDIC, from your bank or credit union, is that a loan or is that just something sitting there in case you need a loan? No, that's just savings. So you have $5,000 sitting in the checking account that you can use to repair your broken transmission if you get a $2,000 repair bill from your mechanic. So it's just something that you put aside every month 
you have an auto deposit into a bank account for your paycheck, right? So it's as simple as saying, do you spend less than you make? And if you do, there's going to be a positive buildup of money in that account, right? And so once you have that account built up to three to six months of your spending, you know, so for example, if you spend 3000 a month, three times six is $18,000. So once you've built that account up to $18,000, then you can kind of stop and use some of those excess funds for things like retirement and uh, paying off loans if you need to. I see. So when you said from the FDIC, you were just basically saying- I'm saying it's FDIC it's insured. Insured. So it's in a it's in a protected account. It's very safe. Yes. It's very safe. Like don't save it in your mattress. Put Correct. it in there to get a little tiny bit of interest. So right. right. Many financial planners, all you know, I think any financial planner I've ever talked to always talks about six month emergency fund in the bank just in case of disability or something happens. And, you know, just three years ago today, I had a terrible accident in a gym, almost lost my my foot. And working from home, I could continue to work once I was through emergency surgery and a little bit of my recovery. But that piece of equipment that almost took my leg could have gone through my liver or whatever. And I could have been, I could have been a vegetable if it hit my head. So yeah, so having some money set aside for emergencies and emergencies happen. It happened to me three years ago today. It's interesting and ironic and serendipitous that you and I are talking on July 7th, the anniversary of that that accident that I had. So before we go, let's talk about studentloanplanner.com. Um, so I'm here on the website now. There's a link to refinancing. So you give information about the 11 best banks for refinancing student loans. You also have a blog and you can search by topic and it's all about any aspect of student loans, right? That's correct. Yeah. And then the podcast, which I don't think you had when you and I first talked, I'm not sure, but there's now- Probably not. There's 84 episodes. So so, um, it's wonderful you have that. So like episode 83 is what will student loan refinancing look like after the pandemic? Episode 84 is Nicole Hatcher on being a PA and systemic racism in medicine. That's really interesting. So, and then we have mental health challenges borrowers have because of student loans. So this looks like this goes pretty deep. Like there's, it's not just about loans. This, this is much, much broader than that, isn't it? Yeah, we, we do try to cover quite a few things that would be of interest to anybody with, with debt. Yeah, and, and are all the episodes with guests or are some of them monologues with you? It's a little bit of both. So a lot like my podcast, you have interviews interspersed with diatribes from, from the host. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to link to everything in the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 287. We'll have your Facebook, which is Student Loan Plan on Facebook. The website is studentloanplanner.com. Instagram is Student Loan Planner. Twitter is Student Loan T-R-A-V for Trav, Travis, so Student Loan Trav. And then on LinkedIn, you're at Student Loan Planner. And are you personally on LinkedIn as an individual? That No, it's the same. It's the same. Okay, so people will find you through Student Loan Planner on LinkedIn. So thank you so much. And we'll make sure to have a link also to that article on student loan forgiveness that we had talked about that's a somewhat comprehensive look at the, this whole picture. 
So Travis, thanks so much. And, you know, I'll have you back in 2021 after the election and after the inauguration or whatever. And we'll talk about how things are looking, you know, maybe halfway into 2021. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. I hope you feel uplifted and informed from this episode. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 287. Remember to head over to studentloanplanner.com and find Travis and Student Loan Planner on social media. Check out his podcast and his blog. There's obviously tons of great information there, including how to find the right bank if you really, truly need to refinance. And you're going to want to keep your your eye on what Travis is saying after the election and after the inauguration in January 2021. And remember, if you mention that you heard me here on the Nurse Keith Show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package if you need career coaching. And head over to nursekeith.com to resources to find jobs from Reload, Trusted Health, Incredible Health, ZipRecruiter, as well as some great resume templates from my friend Amanda Guarnier at The Resume RX. So please check those out. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts, media entities, musical artists, and others whose aim is to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientific informed perspective and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check us out at arslonga.media. That's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm grateful to both Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and my friend Travis Hornsby bidding you adieu from St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri, the beautiful Midwest. Thank you, Travis, so much. And we will catch everybody on the flip side. 